Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of technology, media, and business in Asia. The show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desks. And Linkshus, the place where you can sell your products everywhere. Hi, Ben. Hey, Bernard. How are you? I'm well. This is Ben Beharin from Creative Strategies and also TechPinions. It's been a couple of months since we last spoken. So how are things on your side? Things are good. Things are busy. You know, summer's an interesting time in the Valley. We, you know, a lot of executives go on vacation, so we get a little bit of a breathing period, but I happened to be on one of those deadline type things where I had multiple deadlines to hit in the middle of summer. So I didn't get as much time as I wanted as a break, but we go with the ebbs and flows of the industry. So can't terribly complain. There's a reason why I got you down here to have a conversation over Skype since we have the power of telecommunications over the internet these days. It's a little bit about the smartphone growth in India and China. So I'm always very curious about how people like yourself who know how to make estimations on growth of smartphones in emerging markets such as China and India. Can you give me a little bit of thought on that? Yeah, so everybody who does forecasts and estimates, you know, does it differently. And and the bottom line is those who do it better have a, a plethora of data points. So I always say, you know, the more data points you have, the better, because it's not an exact science. And, you know, you're basically trying to pull as many data points as you can as possible. And you use all of those together to sort of create an estimate. We use supply chain as a fairly heavy indicator. So that's component providers. So it could be, you know, people providing the memory chips to smartphones. It could be the displays. It could be the CPUs. It could be the image sensors, whatever. And so, you know, we track these sources of the components that we know go specifically into smartphones. We also have relationships with carriers. And so while somebody like Qualcomm or an image processor or SanDisk or, you know, somebody who, who provides a component won't give us a an exact data point they kind of give us like a thumbs up thumbs down wink wink nod nod kind of a thing and similar with carriers when we're talking to they won't say yeah we shipped this many smartphones but we can say look here's where i think i am am i in the ballpark and they can kind of help guide us so we know approximately from the people who know the answer guiding us in the right direction to make sure that we're you know within the ballpark of where we want to be and again we don't just go to one of those we check all the sources just to make sure they all line up so that one vendor can't give us can't lie to us we double check that through other other sources as well so we use as again as many data points as possible there's online mechanisms i use developer portals there's statistics that track you know actual usage of devices in markets so you know again the point is we you've got to have as many different data points as as possible so that while you're talking to folks in the industry or while you're looking at you know developer portals to see you know how many devices might be in use and, and you can use all of those together to validate each other's data points and make sure that there's kind of a consensus around that and to be honest with you a, a lot of us in the industry analyst community check with each other also just to make sure that we're on the same page so you've kind of got me and our IDC or Gartner or NPD or whoever right in, in China kind of saying hey are you seeing this are you seeing that just to double check so we kind of just make sure sure everybody's on the same page. We're all hearing the same things. The data points are lining up. And so we use that to get a, a picture, if you will, of the, of the landscape when it comes down to doing an estimate for either a vendor 
or a category at large, you know, ASP, things like that. So like I said, it's really just a matter of how many data points you have and can you put all those together to create the story and, and paint the whole picture. Do you have other secondary sources to try to make those estimations? Like, for example, I mean, when it comes to smartphone usage then? Do, do you also have challenges in finding those kind of data? So the other part of this is we run our own primary research group as well. So I run you know, the primary research for Creator Strategies. So we, we actually survey over 30,000 consumers every quarter on dozens and dozens of different topics, right? So it's just, it's, it's what are they doing with social media? What are they doing on their devices? What are the apps they're using? How much time they're spending? So, you know, we get a ton of data through actual market research in terms of questions that we're asking and feedback we're getting. So we use that to go into, to add into our estimates. That We use that a lot for forecasting. You know, for example, when we were building the models for iPhones, the upgrade cycles, you know, we were asking specific iPhone users, you know, do you plan to upgrade in the next six months, in the next year? You know, what's your intent to buy of the version? Is it the 6 or the 6 Plus? And we did the same thing with the Apple Watch. And so that's how we talked. We surveyed actual owners, in this case, of the iPhone and said, what are your purchase intentions? Which device do you write? We tried to collect as much data on them asking those questions, forward, you know, trying to forward guide into what they'll do, what they'll buy, things like that over the next six months to a year two years, and we use that into our forecasting model. So that's an example of Apple. We do this for a number of vendors. It could be smartphone. It could be how much do you plan to pay on data? Do you plan to buy a TV? I mean, all the things that we that we class, we ask them kind of where they're at, what they're thinking they're going to buy, and, and use that for our forecast just to say, yeah, 20% of you know iPhone 5S centers in the US say they're going to buy they're going to upgrade in the 12 months well then that's a pretty predictable number that we can use for our forecast and say we think based on this data that's going to lead to these kind of numbers and that's all primary research specifically i wanted to talk to you about an article that you wrote on techpinions about questioning china and india's smartphone growth in the article what you, you did pointed out was that there is a lot of journalists pointing out that the markets of china and india are actually near saturation but that is not the case from your article. Can you tell us a little bit more about that article and what were you trying to convey through the, or the message that you're trying to bring out in analyzing smartphone growth in China and India? So the, the two parts of it are, you know, as I, I don't like public statistics or public data that's incorrect. It's a, it's a pet peeve of mine. And, and I think, you know, what happened was unfortunately the late, the gals at, I forget, was it IDC that they were mentioning? I, I can't remember who. Which, which analyst firm made the point where they said, you know, that China was saturated. They actually did mean that the developed parts of China are saturated, right? So tier one through tier three, you know, Beijing, Shanghai, those types of places are near saturation. And that's true. My overall point was, you know, there's actually, if you look greater at, at the greater whole of, of China, it's less than 50% smartphone penetration. So I just wanted to make sure people didn't think that a billion people in China had smartphones. It's really only, you know, 650 million, maybe around there approximately of people using smartphones in China. And most of those are developed. So yes, it's it's near saturation. It's it's a replacement market in your tier one, tier two, and tier three cities. But outside of that, getting into rural, getting into the village, that's that's the really challenging part. That's the next stage to try to bring to China from a smartphone growth space. And it's the same with India. You know, there's around there's almost now 300 million smartphone users in in India. That for the most part is is people who have higher disposable income, who can afford a phone, who can afford a data plan. But it has not tipped into the rural areas. And and obviously. Based on those numbers, you would rec- you would observe that developed China is larger than developed India, you know, by almost three x. 
So I think you know you, you look at those things and you say in each of these markets there are placement sex cycles and we need to know what that is but that but there's still a lot of headroom for growth in both those markets. So that was kind of my overall point was was recognizing the two differences in those statistics which is in tier 1, you know, into in the developed parts of China and India, yes, it's saturated, but that's not the whole that's not representative of the entire of mainland China or of the entirety of India. And so I just wanted to point out that there's still growth ahead, but it's going to be challenging because we're now getting into rural, we're getting into villages, we're getting into people who probably can't really afford there's just there's just more problems to solve for the growth area of smartphones than there is for you know the the current base that uses them today in those markets. Yeah, it's been an exciting summer because China has a big stock market issue last week. Do you see that impacting the smartphone market given that it only has about forty five percent smartphone penetration? Well, I think you know again, I think we you know we observe both India and both China decreased year over year in smartphone sales. That's sort of something we heard across the board, both with our, our firm and others. And, and I think that points to what I explained, which is that everybody who can afford a smartphone today in terms of the upfront cost, as well as who can afford a data plan that's, you know, call it north of $10, $20 a month, the, everybody who can afford that has it today. And what happened was that, you know, we didn't, we didn't get either phone prices or more importantly we didn't get data prices low enough that we could tip into this next sort of tier that has much more you know restrictions on their finances and and that's the growth area so we didn't bleed into that side so that's one why i think you know those markets those markets were hit now to the this is a concern and this is something i've heard frequently i mean because obviously if in china you do have people who are you know kind of freaking out about their money and leads to either a crash or you know recession type of a thing of spending, yes, it can impact spending. And I've heard this from CEOs of companies who are trying to bring products into China, and it, it is a genuine concern. I don't think we know really the extent that everybody had some money in the in the Chinese stock market and what that, that impact will be. I think over the next six months, we'll learn, we'll, we'll learn and see that. But it is a concern, and I hear the concern frequently that kind of impact will affect tech spending. And if it does, then yeah, I mean, I think everybody's got to be concerned about you know how much disposable income or how conservative Chinese consumers will be with their money. But again, I, I don't think we're we're going to know that yet. It's going to take a few more months to see if that's having much impact on consumer goods. I saw the recent China smartphone market report you have actually published on TechPinions. There's something very interesting in the high-end Android market. It seems to be being squeezed out by Apple given that the numbers from Xiaomi and Samsung are declining. Is that that market is disappearing or could there be something that we didn't see? Well, I mean, I guess there's there's two bits, right? Mm. So there, there really wasn't anybody truly in a Chinese vendor who was actually in any significant share of premium. You know, as you know, you know, and I think people who are familiar with Asia would know most Chinese handset vendors had a problem getting above 3,000 RMB in their price, right? Anything above that, somebody who could afford that typically went for either an iPhone or a high-end Samsung. So when you look just on price, if we're just using premium as a price definition for, for China, so let's call it $500 and above, hmm. that market was largely controlled by Samsung and by Apple. And so what's happening, and what I pointed out in that chart showing that Apple is, iPhones are growing significantly in terms of share of premium is that they're taking that from Samsung. So more and more of the premium market, the, the, you know, the, the above $500 smartphones, really above six $700 smartphones, are increasingly going to Apple and away from Android. 
and um, or sorry, away from Samsung. And so Apple now has you know almost sixty percent share by quarter of the premium smartphone market sales, and they're, that, that, that is growing significantly over the course of time as we're sort of tracking that momentum. And, and a, a good question is, again, and I hear this constantly, even just through the conversations I have with the Chinese smartphone vendors, is you know, can they move up? They don't want to be stuck under 3,000 RMB forever. They would like to sell both Huawei and Xiaomi, you know, just, just for, so everybody knows, there's only really four brands that have the majority of share, plus 60% in every demographic. It's four brands. It's Samsung, Huawei, Xiaomi, and Apple. Those are the four most owned brands across all demographics in China. Everybody else makes up you know, kind of the rest uh, above that. But those three equal, 30 per, equal 60% at every income class. And then the higher you go in income class, the higher it's only Samsung and iPhone. But the point is, is that those Chinese vendors don't just want to stay there. You know, I think both Huawei and Xiaomi would like to move up in that market. But right now, we're seeing Apple take the dominant share, and that's not slowing down in premium smartphones sold in China. Given that Apple seems to spur the high-end smartphone markets, would that actually lead to those 50-plus smartphone brands in China to start consolidating? Because there's, there's a lot of smartphone brands in China in the middle yeah. market. And right. I, sometimes I, I also find it also very difficult to classify whether Xiaomi is actually in the high-end market or middle-end market because of the price point. Can you just sort of help me to understand that piece? Yeah, so there's two things. So you're, you're absolutely right. There's, there's probably way too many smartphone brands in China. And really, to my point, you know, you've got... 50 plus brands, possibly even more that could come into the market, really competing for really about 30 to 40% share, if that, uh, of the market. So, you know, that I think is some challenging dynamics. I think there was a huge S curve being ridden in terms of growth in smartphone shipments. And as you know, it's pretty easy to manufacture phones in China. It's pretty easy to go to market with phones in China. And I think there was a lot of companies that just capitalized on that upward swing trend, and it's just it's inevitably got to got to consolidate. Um, I don't know if that's just that that brands go out of business because they made some money and now they 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 can't sustain anymore and they're not going to pour into innovation and they don't want to get squeezed out and so they get out of the market or if they get purchased by the bigger brands. But I fully expect that the Chinese market can't sustain all of those, especially if it's slowing down. So you know the new opportunities around trying to go rural those might be different vendors. Um, but again, the 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 people, the consumers who are a bit more profitable, if you will, are already have a smartphone in China, and so they they're looking to have. You know, I think there's going to be consolidation there in that segment. And you and you know, and you're right about you're right about Xiaomi. I mean, I think they've done a very good job. So, for example, here I have a chart, and I'll sort of just read off a couple of statistics related to Xiaomi. So Xiaomi is most owned, the, meaning the largest percentage. So we do this survey where we say, we actually ask household income level greater than RMB 900 and then segments going down all the way down to you make as a household less than RMB 42K, right? So I break them down 700 to 900, 500 to 700, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So Xiaomi is owned by people who say in these different household income levels, who say they own a Xiaomi device, the largest one is RMB 60 to 80K, and that's 19%. And that's the largest group of income breaks who say they own a Xiaomi phone. You know, for example, RMB 55 to 60K, it's 12%. RMB to 42 to 55K, it's 17%. Less than RMB 42K is 15%. And it just goes down the higher you go. So you get up into you know, RMB 700 to 900K, for example, Xiaomi is 9%. You get above 900K RMB, it's 8%. So it's the largest below 
RMB 100 to 120K. So that, that sort of just sort of tells you, okay, so what's the income level of people who are buying those devices? And they happen to be in the lower tiers, which is where it's, it's mostly owned. And so while I think there's some premium, like, the, the, you know, that demographic still wants a device that looks premium. I think there is something to be said about Xiaomi's brand that says something about you that's positive, whether that means that you're into tech or you're, you're, you're an up-and-comer, so you're rising in status. I think those dynamics are playing into them. And that's, again, those are people for who are, it's a real stretch to try to own an iPhone, you know, at RMB less than 60 to 80K for a household level. And so they're, they're showing you there that they still want the status, they still want the perceived quality, Xiaomi fits that build, and then from there, who knows, right? I think you, maybe they move up and buy iPhones. I mean, for example, we we do see that the highest the highest brand intent to switch right now has been from Xiaomi to Apple. So you know, we're seeing Apple take share from Xiaomi in the switching route. Is one of the one of the bigger benefits from from the the newer iPhones. And so I think that, again, that tells a little bit. I think they want to be perceived as premium, but again, they're mostly owned in the lower income classes. But there is that, you know, even at the lower income classes, that desire for status, that desire to be perceived as, um, you know, having a device. And I think Xiaomi has done a good job catering to them. But if you just look at, are they buying, are they being purchased by people who really value premium? You get above 180, you know, 200K and the whole market shifts to Samsung and Apple. Wow. And how would be the market dynamics then play out for China and India for smartphones, in your opinion? I mean, they're, they're really different. You know, I mean, it's, there's such a different dynamic between China and India. It's, it's remarkable. I mean, India is like the complete opposite of China, you know, where people really, really price is so much more important than almost anything. Value at a price metric in India is so much, so much more important. Whereas, you know, in, in China, you've got people scraping by and, you know, fasting and saving money on days just to purchase iPhones. So it's really much, it's a really different market, you know, and I think, like I said, you know, you, you look at Who's online today? You know, and I think Apple particularly has a lot of headroom still to grow in China, and and India has been you know a real struggle for them. There, there really isn't much, to be honest with you, of a premium smartphone market the way that we've just defined premium by price point as there is in China. There really isn't, you know, in India. Most of the devices sold there are really between one hundred and fifty and two hundred and fifty dollars, and that's a that's a value conscious market. But those are really great devices: big screens, super super high resolution, four to eight core processors, good image processing. I mean, they're really good devices in between the one hundred and fifty and two hundred and fifty price range. So it's it's again, and that's the bulk of the market. So with that, you know, there aren't there aren't the same dynamics that that play out in India. And I still think, like I said, India's got a lot of growth ahead of it, but it's not really going to come from, you know, that price points that I just talked about. It's going to come from the sub $100 market. It's going to come from, you know, people who, who much lower cost and data plans types of things, getting the, the villages, the rural online, which is true of both India and China. So I sort of make a dividing line Who's in the market today and what does it look like? And that's a very different market than, than the growth areas. And, and, I, and I split those two apart and say customer, you know, companies who are competing for the 650 million you know, smartphone users in China and the 200, you know, 250, almost now 300 million smartphone users in India, that's one market. And you're going to go about that differently. If you want to go after 
you know, the next 600 million people in China or the next billion people in India, those are two very different markets. And so how you strategize and think about that market, I, I don't think they're the same at all. And so I sort of divide them up by that sort of dividing line and look at them as very, very different markets, even though we're still talking about smartphones, it's two different markets for smartphones. And you also have recently offered the view that China is more important strategically to Apple as compared to India. What are the reasons that led you to this perspective? So there's two things. I mean, I think, again, you know, our, our research of the China market and particularly around Apple in China just shows that they still have a lot of room to grow. Um, you know, their market share there is, is continuing to increase. And, and we're, we're optimistic that the dynamics around Apple, which is a very brand, you know, luxury type of a product, you know, s the status associated with that in China, those dynamics play well in Apple's favor. None of those dynamics play well in, in India at all. And so, for example, there are, I think I've said this before, if, if not, this will be sort of new to everybody, but our estimates are that there's roughly right now between 90 and 100 million iPhone users in China. Um, in India, that's 10 million. And, you know, you just look at just the dramatic difference, you know, Apple's less 1% to less than 1% of India, whereas they're somewhere in the 20% range of, uh, you know, of, of China. And that just shows you that not a lot's changed. You know, I mean, there's differences in that Apple doesn't have a, a, a first party retail at all. Those are re all phones that are sold through authorized resellers. So yes, the retail dynamic is different. But I was talking with some folks, you know, in India last night about this, and 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 it's it, a lot of the app developers that charge one dollar for you know anywhere between one dollar or two dollars for their apps today in the United States market charge sixteen cents for those same apps in India, and it just shows you the cost dynamics that are so dramatically different in that market, and the installed base of of iPhones in China. I mean, in, in India, gravitate more toward legacy. So it's it, it goes in order. 5s is the most owned uh, iPhone in India. 3g. I mean, the 3g is the second you know most owned device in India, and then 4s. And it shows you those those customers are still price conscious. They're buying legacy phones at somewhere between three hundred and five hundred dollars. But they're really not spending anything in the ecosystem because, again, it's a very value centric. You want to get the most for your money is the is the is the the the, the mentality in India, and so they perceive value as give me great products, give me great specs, give me everything I can at the lowest price possible. That's that's their goal, and that's that's not a, a, a dynamic that plays well with Apple's current strategy, and that's why they have such small numbers in sales in India, even though it's growing, I think they'll pass 2 million for the first time in that market in, in 2015. That's still really small compared to other markets, especially for how big India is. So I just think the dynamics of, of Apple, how they've perceived themselves, how they're positioning themselves, doesn't, doesn't really go, uh, doesn't really fit India's model. I don't know how they're going to, they're going to go after India. I think it's very, very tricky. But like I said, if I'm, you know, you look at China and unquestionably there's the, the dynamics around the Chinese market favor everything Apple's doing and we're continuing to see them raise share. So the ceiling has not been hit in China at all. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that's why that it's so strategic. And really, like I said, the dynamics just don't line up to fit the way Apple's positioning themselves and their products with the, with the, the main buying mentality in India. Mm. Do you expect the India's top 10% grow? Because 
there's a aspire, there's a growing middle class. Actually, the way to see this is actually looking at the middle class and then basically people aspire to a top brand. Right. Apple is more treated like an LVMH brand than a consumer electronics company in Asia. Yeah. And again, I I don't the the the, the dynamics are just simply not the same mm-hmm. in India. And I agree. I mean, there there are definitely higher middle class India is still a very brand centric market. I mean, I think the thing that that I try to make sure people don't miss is that Indians and the Indian markets they don't they don't want cheap devices. Like they're not trying to buy the bottom of the barrel cheap. They want value. You you know, and an eight core five you know five inch high resolution screen with a great image sensor at two hundred fifty bucks is a great deal. I mean, you look at you look at it on paper and it's a great deal. You know, and we can argue that the operating system experience is is just not as good between you know iOS and Android, but that's really a moot point, you know, when when you look at at the Indian buying mentality. And you know, and they value just again the 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 best price, the best value at the best price. And that's you know, that's like I said, that's just a different dynamic for the Indian market, even when those consumers move up. You know, like I said, there has to be you know, more than 10 million people with high disposable income in India, yet the iPhone penetration is really that, that low, right? So, so it, it just goes to show you that even, even when the, the, the wealthiest portion of that population is not buying iPhones in mass, that just goes to show you that the dynamic of how value is perceived is very, very different. So I, I just don't see that changing yet. You know, I'd like to say that I do. I'd like to say, hey, you know, Apple's going to crush it in India because they've done this, 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 and this. I, I just don't see that yet. Mm. And that leads to my next part of the conversation, which is the Apple Watch discussion. I saw the slice data. I also got into the forums of tech opinions and looked at what your opinion of that data set it i mean given that the apple watch is now globally sold in i think a couple of asian countries i mean how do you actually facilitate that data collection and how do you analyze it and maybe you can tell us a little bit about what what was your opinion on the slice data as well yeah and luckily i think a lot of articles have sort of come out now talking about the slice data pointing out some of the flaws in their methodology and i think you know recode and a few other sites uh, i think the wall street journal is doing one right now because i talked to the guys at the wall street journal and and they're sort of pointing out you know a lot of the things that i've been saying for for a while now that their methodology is just a little bit shaky and you simply cannot use that you know as the as the de facto uh, fact for how apple watch is doing right because again they're limited to online purchases only and Slice is a email plugin that basically lets you know Slice users are letting Slice look at their inboxes, and so of all their you know people who use the the Slice uh, technology, they're evaluating receipts of purchases by people who let them look at their inbox, and so they're using that to say, hey, we saw this many, and so this is this is how many purchases we're seeing happen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The, the bottom line is the market, you know, everybody who was buying online was an early adopter, right? So we expected the spike to be high by your highly tech aficionado people who purchased online. That's, that's how they're going to purchase. So we expected that spike to be high, and that's exactly what happened. Slice's data shows a spike at launch, and then it sort of normalized. That didn't mean that sales were decreasing. All it meant was that People who bought online 
bought online, and now all of the volume it could be shifting to retail. That's that's kind of how you observe it, right? And so my my the problem was that one, it's U.S. centric; it's on, only online receipts, and more importantly, it's following a very traditional cycle for consumer goods in that there is a burst at the beginning and then a normalizing of sales. So my concern was just that people are saying, "Oh, Apple Watch is doing terrible," and and I was saying all along the lines like, "No, my supply chain sources." what I'm hearing from vendors, what we're doing in terms of intent to buy. We're not seeing momentum slow down from all of the areas where I know I would see if momentum slowed down. So I was trying to you know, sound the horn that, look, you, know, you guys, this is incorrect. Uh, Apple Watch isn't doing as bad as everybody thought. You know, we continue to see strong momentum, not even slowing down in terms of sales moving in. And again, that's coming from all of our our supply chain sources where we can track components that we know are going specifically into the watch and see what production output is from those. So we know, like I said, we know that that it was not slowing down. So I was just trying to you know, sound the horn to say this is being overblown, you're taking this data the wrong way, it's not actually true based on what we're seeing, and just try to help 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 set the record straight, if you will, was kind of my, my approach to that. Mm. You look at all the data, you seem to be tracking most of the data from the supply chain. What about from the distribution side? For example, in Asia, a lot of Apple Watches are actually sold through what I called resellers, where they are basically selling the same tech hoyers, the philippotic watches, Etc. Do you also track those as well? Because the, the thing has moved into the retail side now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the tricky part about retail is again, we you can't track Apple's retail channels, so we don't know exactly how many that they're yeah. selling. Once you move to the gray market, it get you know, or the reseller market, it gets a little bit easier, but again, somewhat tricky because there's so much ambiguity around these particular numbers. A supply chain is just the best way that we can do. And, and I'm making some assumptions based on my intent to buy surveys, both from owners, iPhone owners in China and iPhone owners in the United States, just to, just to put some, you know, some numbers around a model as to how many of these are being sold. Because like I said, I know how many are coming out from the output in terms of supply chain as a rough estimate. I know what the range is. Now I'd have to take that range and say, well, what percent do I think is the US? What percent do I think is China and other markets? And that's where our did you buy or did you intend to buy surveys are are helpful of iPhone owners because then I can start to get a mix of all right if it was forty percent from China you know came back in our survey said that they had purchased or or intend to purchase etc I can look and and divide up that way so that's that's the best I can do to kind of figure out where they're coming from because like I said we can't track Apple retail and, and it's just really hard to track um, you know the reseller market in China as well I want to get a sense of your experience I actually got an Apple Watch from the US and shipped to Singapore and you did some research about the usage with and without the Apple Watch. You want to talk about it? Yeah, yeah sure. I mean, I, I, I've, I was you know, fortunate enough to, to be in the very, very early uh, outside group that got an Apple Watch. So I got mine, you know, uh, uh, I think about a month, maybe 30-ish days or so before everybody else could get one or order one, actually. I guess I had it for two months uh, early. And, you know, and, and I really, I, I wore it every day. I never took it off. I mean, it's honestly the longest wearable, you know, I've ever worn. I didn't wear a watch prior. I didn't wear a Fitbit. I didn't really like having anything strapped to myself. But, you know, the, I, I really liked the Apple Watch, and so I wore it every day, all day. And, uh, you know, and, and I, it got ingrained into my life, into my daily work routine, into my personal routine, into how I communicate. 
just just deeply ingrained in my life. And so I thought, you know, well, what would happen if I took it off? Like, what would let me remember what life was like before this particular product? And I thought, you know, this isn't going to be a big deal. Like, this is going to be pretty easy. I can just take it off, and 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 it won't be that hard. And for the first few days, it was really, really hard. You know, part of it is because I do get. Uh, I mean, my predominant way to communicate is through messaging, and in particular, you know, iMessage. I mean, I communicate with nearly everybody that I talk to just all all the time through text messaging. And so, you know, the first thing I realized right away was, you know, you send a text message, then you put your phone down and you go back to doing something else and then it buzzes and then you pick it up and you send a text message and then you set it down and then two months, two, you know, two minutes later it buzzes again and there's just constant like pick up, respond, pick up, respond, pick up, respond. Even if it's just pick up to see what somebody said and I don't have to respond, I still have to pick it up. And and that was one like really simple convenience that you realize with the watch was while while having a prolonged conversation and I have like you know I don't know ten twelve conversations going on at one time <laughs> through 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 messaging you know sometimes you don't you don't need to respond but you do want to see what the person said and that was kind of the one thing that really struck me about the watch on things like that and this is true of the notifications is that that you really have to. I mean, again, it seems obvious now, but it didn't seem obvious before the Apple Watch that, that yeah, every time your phone buzzes or dings, you have to pick it up just to see what it is. And that simple filter of just being able to quickly look at your wrist, see what it is, then decide whether or not you need to go to your phone or, or, or respond from the watch, it was just remarkably convenient. I mean, in the, the, it, was, it was really strange how, how irritated I was for a couple of days that I had to go pick up my phone. And you know, and you, you know, you walk around the mall, and it's like all these weird things that happen once you experience this. Like you walk around the mall, or you walk around in public, and you hear somebody's phone going off on their bag. You know, it's a lady, and there's turn around, they stop, they're fishing their phone out, they're searching through their bag, ripping stuff out because they don't want to miss the call. And you realize, I mean, I can do all of that from my wrist, you know. And it's just you see these pain points that people have, and they and they don't really recognize just how great. A product could be that you just look at and you go, "Yep, all right, I see it," and move on. And so, just just high convenience around that was kind of what I what I articulated. You know, and the point was, yes, it's not a necessity; it's not something that you absolutely need. But I said, you know, we live today in an era filled with modern conveniences, filled with things we don't need. We don't need microwaves. We don't need dishwashers. We don't need you know cars that have you know keyless entry. But when you try living without those things, you realize how much you valued the conveniences around something like keyless entry or something like, you know, a dishwasher. And and that was my experience with the watch was that, you know, while you realize you don't need it, you realize, wow, my life was a lot better when it was on. And that was what that week sort of reinforced for me. And I just thought it was an interesting way to approach it because, you know, I, I had lived and, and I had deeply integrated the watch and I wanted to see what was life like without it. You know, and my, again, my conclusion was, you know, I, I'm, life's much better with it, especially for me and my flow and kind of how I do things. Um, and so that was kind of the overarching, you know, uh, piece of my article and kind of just what I did, again, from an analysis standpoint, just to try to understand where does the value really lie in this product. And that would be interesting for me as well, because I'm actually designing apps on the watch. So I have been trying different things as well. And I find that the first thing I actually did was to turn off everything and then slowly just add notifications on. And then now the watch becomes a little bit personalized to me seeing messages. And I find that the moment I took it off for one week, it was also the same situation as well on that. Yeah. You know, I mean, not, not like I said, I don't expect everybody to experience this and I don't expect everybody's experience to be like mine. Mm. But, you know, like I said, after after deeply ingraining 
the Apple Watch into my life for quite some time. It was just interesting to kind of go back to the world before it and just kind of learn about, you know, what things I'd streamlined, things I was able to do in in just process flow, you know, things like just being able to tell Siri, hey Siri, you know, text my text Jen, I'm on the way home, versus having to pull out my phone, log in. I mean, it's not that hard, but you realize I just did this in a matter of microseconds versus four to five seconds to pull out my phone. And every little second counts, especially when you're super busy like I am. But again, it just comes back to there's a lot of convenience wrapped around the watch. And I think people see that over time. And that was why I thought the experience was interesting. I just reminded myself what life was like, you know, before. That comes to the last part of my conversation with you. So the myth of the tech bubble. I mean, I've read Benedict Evans' report from the A16Z about that. What are your thoughts pertaining to that bubble conversation? I think it's more US-centric conversation. So before I actually come to the Asia part, I saw just want to get your thoughts on it first. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is obviously a, a highly debated topic. I think, you know, what, what Benedict pointed out and, and what I think a lot of the, a lot of the, you know, call it thinkers who are posting on this, what, what, what's correct is that, you know, we, we are in a very different cycle than, you know, than 2001. You know, in 2001, there there wasn't really a truly global opportunity for the internet. You know, I mean, we were talking about maybe 800 million people, maybe a billion, if I'm being generous, was the opportunity for dot-com companies. And the dynamics have changed so much that now we're talking about company opportunities north of 4 billion people. And that's a much, much larger market opportunity. And so if you just stop and say, the market's bigger, then yeah, you know, we've got a lot of growth. There's a lot of revenue opportunity. There's a lot of new customers that just make the size of the opportunity much, much larger than the size of the opportunity in 2000. And that's why we're seeing pretty big valuations. We're seeing companies who say, these are going to be very big, very global companies uh, trying to address a global market of 4 billion people. And and that's that's a lot of opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. Now, the the challenge is that there's a there the counter to this is is that yes there is actually a lot of very easy money you know it's 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 easy to raise vc money right now right money is easy to come by and that's that's kind of where the caution flags come in which is to say if we hit you know a major recession if we hit some economic slowdown which really isn't forecasted to happen but let's just assume that it is in the next few years then you'd see a consolidation right money would become more expensive whereas money's cheap right now and that potentially changes the dynamic of of a venture which then changes the dynamic of how easy it is to start companies and raise monies and those are valid concerns right we'd have no evidence that that's happening yet but those are va- those are valid concerns so the valuations like i said you're seeing is because we are in a boom cycle and i've always sort of broke down if if you look at the history of the industrial revolution you can go all the way back to shipping boats and canals to railroads to automotive and you can see in a very similar cycle where in the early stages of the market there was a bubble valuation spiked it was very short and then it kind of crashed and recessed and, and flatlined. And then what you saw after that in the boom period was a significantly large cycle that looked much bigger, like a big traditional S curve, but you know, bell curve that took decades 
and grew an industry and prospered. And so my overall thesis has been, you know, following the tradition of now 100 plus years of the Industrial Revolution that he, history teaches us, these cycles start with bubbles and then move to boom periods that are much larger and much longer than the, than the bubble cycle is that's what we're seeing right now. We're in the boom period. But even in that boom period, as to my point is, there's still some things you've got to watch with those waters as they navigate, price of money, um, you know, obviously the, the, are the assumptions lining up for global companies that could be valued at X billions of dollars. But like I said, I believe we're in a boom period, not a bubble period. And on top of that, I think that, you know, again, the size of the opportunity is just dramatically different. And, and I think, you know, that's, that's what we're moving to in this cycle. But again, there's, there's dynamics of, of capital that, yes, we have to keep our eyes on. Mm. Do you think that this fear of missing out attitude FOMO is leading to asset inflation? Well, I mean, again, it's, it's, if the value, I mean, if the valuation does not is not reasonable, then then yes, uh, you know. But the bottom line is, there's really only a couple at the end of the day, right? And and the other part about Benedict's slide that I think is important mm-hmm. is that you know most most big investments have now moved to the later stages. So you know VCs are putting once they're starting putting you know fifty, eighty, a hundred million dollars in per firm, getting these you know raising this these hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of capital for these companies. Is these are much later stage companies, and so around that time, like you, 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 these guys are smart. Like you better be sure that the assumptions line up, and, and you believe that this company is going to meet these expectations. And there's only a couple of of big VC firms, only a handful of firms really competing in those deals. And now you've got hedge funds competing for those deals, but there's not a lot of people. And and again, they know what they're doing, and they're not going to they're not going to make those those deals if uh you know if it's not reasonable if some of the assumptions don't line up but it's still it's still a risk i mean that's the bottom line there's there's still a lot of risk there and i think that, again but while money is cheap like it is today they're willing to observe that risk so that's why my point is that if money gets more expensive then then that could change some of these dynamics about what valuations go and you know again maybe that's just a slight balancing or correction that needs to happen i mean i i personally think some of the assumptions they're making like particularly around uber might be somewhat flawed because i don't know if you've read what i wrote but mm. I, I think glo- i think going global is going to be a lot harder than many of these guys assume for these companies. I mean, you're seeing it right now, right? Yep. It, China, Uber, Uber is is the market share minority in China compared to Didi, and the same in, in India compared to Ola. I mean, they're just not beating local companies who are doing a better job than this. And I just, I just think they're making the assumption that their valuations, for the most part, are based on being able to be global. And I continually see struggles for companies trying to go global. So I kind of have a disconnect in my convictions based on their assumptions for those valuations. But I understand where they're coming from. I just don't personally believe a lot of them are justified. Some might be, but some are not. Just because I think talking about a global audience of $4 billion, I look at that more like, well, we're talking more specifically about China, and we know how many people there are. We're talking about specifically about India, and we know how many people there are. And and that's kind of my the way I perceive these is just, I think, a little bit different than some of the assumptions that I think VCs are making. Before I ask you the Asia question, which you already kind of answered a bit of it, what if the Fed raises interest rates this year? And they have been giving hints that they are likely to do so. Yeah. So that would actually reintroduce some form of a risk aversion for public investors because there's a lot of public investors are now moving into these what they call private IPOs. So what, yeah. what impact would that have on these kind of unicorn valuations then? 
Well, I mean, again, that would make the price of money more expensive, right? So that was my my, my mm. point is that if if the cost if it becomes more expensive, money becomes more expensive. Interest rates is one of the things that would drive that, and that's one of the primary concerns when I talk to people in, in finance and economics. Is that you know if if interest rates go up, that would be the one thing that would cause the cost of of, of money really to go up, at which would then cause some sort of a of a balance here. And like I said, I mean that that could happen. I, I mean, again, I don't I don't think that's a catastrophic thing. I, I think we're still going to see great companies that need to get funded, that will get funded. We might see a little bit of a balance, you know, in 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 correcting in terms of those valuations. But that's that's the bare thesis, if you will, is that interest rates go up, which makes the cost of money, you know, a little bit more expensive, which then impacts how hard it or how easy it is to raise money, pay fees on that money, you know. And so that that absolutely could happen. But I don't think that's in any in is gonna be catastrophic just again, because I think the global opportunity, the boom cycle that we're in uh-huh. is is so large that the opportunity is still just in the early stages of how big of a of, of a global opportunity this is. But I also think that which sort of plays into the China question, whereas there, you know, there may have actually been a investor bubble, not not a stock bubble. I think we're seeing part of it, but an investor bubble in China. I mean, I, I had just constantly heard how easy it was to raise money for every little random idea in China. And that's very similar to the 2000s here. That'll get smarter. Investors will get smarter in these regions, you know. But I'm very interested in kind of how these regional investments are taking place versus global ones. So, what are local investors and VCs doing in China, doing in India, doing in Indonesia, doing in Brazil? Brazil. Those are all markets where we're starting to see kind of these interesting things. And and interestingly, when you take a local approach to that investing, like you're not seeing the same valuations because what they're making a bet on is that their company is going to be the local winner. And the local winner, you know the size of that market, so you're not talking, you know, massive amount of of, of valuations. You're just saying, what's it going to take? Can this company be the market share leader in on-demand services or or whatever banking or finances or commerce in the region? And so they're very smartly focusing just on one region from an investment standpoint versus trying to look at somebody like an Uber and whoever that's trying to be a global company, which just takes a lot more capital. And I really like this local approach to, to investing that I'm seeing right now, some smart investors who, like I said, are just trying to say, let's invest in companies who can own the region, be great businesses. If they're not global, great. But if they own their their, their region, that's great. And you're seeing this kind of, I think, a little bit more intelligent approach to investing when you're just focusing on the region. Mm. I saw the New York Times article that talks about, I think in Asia, there are 37 unicorns now. And here, here, here's my question. And I think you already answered half of it because the high valuations are currently affecting only in two markets. One is e-commerce. The other one is on-demand taxi apps. Yeah. So right. the risk that I've been observing is actually infrastructure risk. Because what I've been observing is that I see that maybe the infrastructure of payments, the infrastructure of even getting the taxi cab drivers to set up the SM-like network is actually much more, demands more resources than before. Do you see that would yeah. have caused a potential bubble then? In, because now you're in the boom cycle, right? When the boom cycle yep. goes, it goes into the next stage is the bubble. But I mean, the bubble can correct itself before it becomes a big bubble. So how do you yeah. see that in Asia? Plays out in Asia. So yeah, I mean, I, I think you, you've hit the nail on the head. And this is something I think there's, there's two kind of interesting parallel but different problems that's also true of India. And y- y- you have where the infrastructure rollout is the necessary first step. The risk is that the companies you've invested in 
aren't the ones to capitalize on that inv- infrastructure on the long haul. So what you've basically just paid for is a micro bubble in a region like India or China. You've invested in infrastructure, but the company you invested in gets disrupted or isn't the one that that wins. And somebody else comes along and builds on that platform. So that's strategic global concern as to what you're investing in from an infrastructure standpoint, and can you be the one you know that wins that that wins that in the long in the long in the long haul. And it's it's again it's it's a different problem to your point in in infrastructure in uh, and logistics in in China, where whereas in India it's 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 a fundamentally different logistics problem where there just really isn't any infrastructure. So it's the most almost I think it's almost forty percent was the last stat I saw of in VC investments going into India were all infrastructure plays. And while that's good because you have to have that infrastructure laid before you can then build and grow and scale, like I said, the risk is that you've paid for all the infrastructure, but you're not your company isn't the one to benefit from that infrastructure. They get disrupted by somebody else. So we're seeing the groundwork for all of that get laid now. Very similar that the infrastructure in the first bubble was laid in the United States, and the 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 growth cycle that we're seeing economically for again whether it's commerce companies or on demand services or any of that stuff, it was fairly mature and and fleshed out in the U.S. market. Those similar cycles have to take place. I think VCs that I talk to are aware of this and trying to make sure that you know that their their guys doing logistics or infrastructure are in the middle of those things that they're either building a platform that others can use. So they've learned those lessons. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's absolutely a risk just because those developed markets are starting at a different place than the U.S. And so you have to have some very smart approaches to that, which is, again, why I favor the very regional approach, understanding the problems, challenges, dynamics, opportunities of a specific region and trying to solve those, you know, versus taking this kind of a everybody will be global viewpoint. Mm, I remember you have this hypothesis that actually for mobile, it gives the opportunities for the local apps to have a chance of taking on the global apps in the same market. Yeah, I mean, and I think again, this is this is just the the fundamental challenge of of being global is just the 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 huge resources it takes to be on compete on every continent. But and specifically when you think about things like mobile payments, when you look at e-commerce, when you look at banking, these are all opportunities, and and they're all regional today. You know, there is not really a global player in any of those things. There's really very regional players. You know, uh, uh, you know, banking is regional. Commerce is done regionally. Local goods are all sold locally, and so it just makes sense that that local companies will spring up and fill some of these needs with lower infrastructure costs, better knowledge of their market, uh, faster time to adapt to local trends than, than global companies will. And again, they're going to do so with a lot less capital because they know their market better. And that's that's what we're seeing. I mean, that's what we're seeing in Indonesia and in China and Brazil and parts of, you know, in, in India. We're seeing these local companies really satisfy their market, do so faster, do so boost better, and do so more economically than a global company that just has significantly over a significant overhead to try to take what they're doing and go global. And so the cost structures just favor in these kind of micro environments for region, these these startups companies that are solving those needs. And that's what we're seeing. That's why we're seeing local companies really challenge global ones. And I just I don't see any signs of that changing. Mm. I like this conversation with you. I wish I could do a two and a half hours like the one that I did with Horace did you. That comes to my last question. To, where can my audience find you? So pretty easy. I mean, like best place uh, to see to see me in frequency is on Twitter at Ben Beharin. 
Um, you know, my stuff is regular. Uh, I, I publish regular columns at techpinions.com, uh, which gets syndicated with Recode. Um, so those are the two places you can find uh, you can find me, but I'm most active on Twitter. So easiest place to follow me and find anything I'm writing or any reports I'm writing, I'll, I'll link to everything on Twitter. Mm. And you can find me at bleungcw or bernardleung.com or subscribe to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E, Asia. Or you can find us in Stitcher, iTunes, and SoundCloud. And please leave a rating, one star to five star. We all love feedback from all of you. So once again, Ben, thank you very much for coming on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Anytime.